And this is from Daniel's prayer of confession for himself and his people. And this is just, this is, this is from uh, Rick Rosetto's Sunday school class. So this is totally free, does not count against my sermon time. So, all right, let's pray and we'll read this, all right? God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a God of prayer, that you hear and answer when we call, that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God who does not count our iniquities and our transgression against us because you have paid them through the blood of your Son, as Hebrews so eloquently tells us over and over. And Father, we, uh, we thank you for that. And we give you praise for your word, which speaks to us by your Spirit's power into our hearts and changes us and draws us near to you. Because, Father, at the end of the day, we know that one thing is needful, that we be near to you and walk in your ways. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just read you these verses, because these are some awesome verses. Um, oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. You know, I was out of the pulpit last week because I had been gone the previous week to Together for the Gospel, and I guess the Lord is working on me on something because I keep hearing some of the same things out of the Word. Uh, but one of the best messages at that uh, was John MacArthur preaching on the seven churches in Revelation. And there's two chapters there that are addressed to the seven churches in Revelation, and he talked about how we who are pastors, because this was a primarily directed at pastors conference, he said, we love to tell the nation that we live in to repent. He says, but five times in seven letters, or actually six times in seven letters, Jesus tells the church to repent. And then, of course, this week, I'm in Sunday school with Rick,
How about this? They'll kind of hem and haul around and then sometimes they'll back off the price a little bit, you know, particularly like a car dealership or whatever, right? And they'll come back with, well, let me talk to my manager. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and, oh, this is really the best we can do for you. Okay, well, I'm going to have to find another place to buy a car then. All right. And I bring all this up because the major point of Hebrews chapter 9 is that Jesus Christ really is the best that God can do for us. That beyond Jesus, God cannot go. There is, no, there is no better thing out there that He can offer us than His Son. And I want to make sure that we hear that right, that God is not apologizing and saying, well, uh, you know, here's Jesus, but He's the best, and he's the, just, he's the best I can do for you. I'm sorry. Okay. No, He is the best, not only that God can do for us, He is the best that it is possible to do. There is nothing better that is out there that God can offer to us with the, apart from Jesus. This is it. This is the best. This is the pinnacle. Better than this isn't available because better than this does not exist. And God has done for us in Jesus Christ the very best that He can. And He can do all things. And there's no sense of inadequacy or of something better that God held back. God held nothing back. He gave us everything that it is possible to give us in sending Jesus Christ to the cross to be raised, to die in our place, and to be raised from the dead, to save us from sin and death and hell, and grant us a place in His own family. Better than that, there's nothing available. And the author of Hebrews wants us to be sure we understand that in detail. And so I want to look at several things here in the text uh, that Jesus' death and resurrection to glory achieves for us. I want to show them to you. Uh, and so if you're not there yet, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning verse 15. We're going to look at verse 15 to 17 to start with, which talk about how we inherit eternal redemption through Jesus' blood. We inherit eternal redemption through Jesus' blood. So I want to read you those verses here. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where, there is a, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established." For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, there's a lot of dense theology, believe it or not, in those three verses. And I want to unpack them with you. The first thing I want you to see is how Jesus is described. That He is the mediator of a new covenant. In other words, He is the go-between between us and God. He is the, the, uh, the figure that speaks 
on behalf of God the Father to us and speaks to God the Father on our behalf, much like Moses under the Old Covenant stood on the mountain and he heard what God said. He carried it down to the people and, uh, and told them what God said, and then he went back up the mountain and told God what the people said in response. Now, it's not because God is deaf, but uh, in order that the people would understand that, that Moses is the mediator between the two of them. Well, Jesus, Hebrews 9 tells us, is the mediator not of a covenant like that, but of a new covenant. Uh, how did that happen? How did he become the mediator of a new covenant? Well, if you look back at verses 13 and 14... It tells us, uh, if you read them, what you learn is that the blood of bulls and goats that were offered as sacrifices under the Old Covenant could only purify you on the outside. Read it there. It says, If the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. See, in order to come to God, in order to be in the presence of God in the temple, you had to be ceremonially clean. You had to, uh, you had, and if you, uh, so if you had a skin disease, if you had, um, if you had just had a baby, if you had just had your, uh, your monthly cycle as a woman, there were all kinds of things that would make you ceremonially unclean. Uh, if you, uh, if you were, um, if you had been to a funeral and touched a dead body, any kind of anything made you ceremonially unclean. And in fact, uh, according to the law, everybody in the nation at some point is ceremonially unclean. And they have to offer sacrifice, they have to go through purification rites, and what he's talking about there with the ashes of a heifer is they would take a red heifer, a red-colored female cow, and they would kill it and burn it to ash. And then they would take some of the ashes and they would put it in, uh, in water in a holy place and they would sprinkle that on you. And that was for your cleansing so that you would come in. But the only thing that it could do, all the sacrifices, all of the sprinkling of the, of the water and so forth on people, all that that could do was clean you up on the outside it couldn't do anything about your heart. Couldn't do anything about your heart. And so Jesus, when He comes, verse 14, through the eternal Spirit, He offered Himself without blemish to God, and He can purify not our flesh, but our, read the text, conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So in other words, that Jesus can not just clean up your, the outside of your body and make you presentable, you know, much like, you know, even if you're really dirty, you can get enough lava soap and hot water to get cleansed on the outside, right? Uh, Jesus can clean you up on the inside, where the sacrifices and the external washings and so forth couldn't touch. And he became, therefore, through that part of the mediator of a new covenant. And according to the text here, several benefits flow to us through Jesus' mediation from God of this new covenant. That for, the first one is, is that uh, we who are called... 
received an eternal inheritance. Now, I want to unpack that a little further. Because when it's talking about calling, it's one of the standard New Testament ways to talk about the people whom God saves. People don't naturally, people do not naturally come to God on their own. They are drawn, in some cases kicking and screaming, uh, into relationship with God by God's grace. Okay? In fact, C.S. Lewis describes his conversion as precisely that way. He was the least willing convert in all England, <laughs> right? That God drug him, in a sense, into relationship with him. Jesus says, no one comes to me, and, uh, no one comes to the, to, to me unless the Father draws him that it's a calling that happens, that God calls people into relationship with Himself as part of His sovereign plans and purposes for, the, for us. And those who, uh, to whom God calls for salvation get an eternal inheritance that God has promised. Well, what's the eternal inheritance? The eternal inheritance is dwelling in the presence of God Himself. See, the big deal about heaven, and people get this confused, they think, well, heaven is the place where I, you know, my, all of my old dogs are alive, and I get to eat without getting fat, and, uh, and all of those kinds of things are, are really, you know, part of heaven. And for all I know, they may be. Uh, for, you know, for all I know, you know, the dog that you had when, uh, when, you were, when you were six is raised to life, and they're with you, right, for all eternity. I don't know. But here's what I do know for sure, that the big deal, biblically speaking, is that God is there, and that you get to go and be with Him, and that everything in the, in, in, that is good about life comes to you from Him as a gift, and that you are made for relationship with Him, and therefore one day you get to go and be with Him who is your heart's desire and the fulfillment of everything that He has promised. That you dwell in eternity with the God of creation who made you for relationship with Himself. That is the big deal of your inheritance. And you get it for eternity. You know, I got an inheritance once it was really nice. It was fantastic. You know, my grandmother blessed uh, Karen and I financially, and I'm still driving it to this day. <laughs> right? Uh, that old Nissan that I have tooling around in the parking lot all over Chillicothe and whatnot. Um, it was really nice. But one day, I just put $1,100 in new brakes and other things on that vehicle. And one day, it's going to puke completely and be hauled off to the junkyard. Right? It is not a lasting inheritance. It's lasted a long time. It's lasted 14 years. I've enjoyed it. But it's not eternal. Amen? It's not eternal. But when we get our inheritance and dwelling in the presence of God, that will last forever. Forever. And we will never use it up. It will never be diminished. It will never wear out. It will never rust. It will never perish. It will never spoil. We will never get tired of it. It will be forever. An eternal inheritance in the presence of God. 
And if you look at verse 16 and 17, you might be confused a bit why the author is all of a sudden talking about a will. And it's because of the link to the idea of our salvation being an eternal inheritance. Well, how do you get an inheritance when someone dies? Well, who died so that you could get your eternal inheritance? Say it with me. Jesus. Amen? Okay, this is one time when the Sunday school answer actually works. (laughs) Right? Jesus died, and therefore I get my inheritance. And you only get it, you only, you know, a person's will, when they make out their will, you know, Karen and I have one, we sent a copy to my brother who's the executive of our estate, if we have one, (laughs) you know, um, you know, we send him a copy. We've got a copy in the fire safe, all that kind of stuff, right? But when does it take effect? When do my children get my stuff? When I'm dead. That's right. Remember that. <laughs> okay. Now, in the same way, we don't get our inheritance, and we, could, we weren't eligible to receive it until Jesus died. And until, it was, until his death happened, we didn't have an inheritance in the presence of God. Why? Because our sin prevented us from entering into God's presence. But now that Jesus has died, our inheritance is ours. Amen? All right. Now, at this point, I want to go back and look closely again at the text and look at the second benefit of Christ's death and resurrection, which is redemption from sin. And I want to fill in that concept for a little little bit. Uh, Nearly 20 years ago, uh, the second year that Karen and I were married, uh, that was in 1997, we went to Charleston, South Carolina. And the old city of Charleston is beautiful. I mean, it is fantastic. They've got these these beautiful homes, and they've got these lush gardens that are out there in this historic district. And it is fantastic. And it looks very much similar to the way it did prior to the Civil War. They have preserved this whole area. But one of the things that they have preserved is the old central marketplace. And that's where things get really interesting. Because they have have this area there for trade in livestock. And they have one for cattle, one for hogs, one for sheep, one for slaves. And they viewed it as identically the same. That a human being and a cow are the same kind of thing. And they've preserved that as a warning for future generations of a very dark chapter in our nation's history, right? Where people were traded, bought and sold, and treated like cattle. And this word redemption is a great word because it has the idea that you and I were in slavery to our sin. That every day we would get up and we would do what sin told us to do because it was our master. And it every day beat us down because it owned us. 
But Jesus, through his death, went to the slave market and bought us and set us free. Amen? We have redemption from sin. We are set free, therefore, from the power of sin over us. One of the greatest letters I ever read was a letter uh, that came out right after the Civil War. It came out a few years ago that surfaced from a historical archives where a guy who was a slave owner down in Mississippi was writing to his former slave in Ohio, inviting him to come back and work for the master. <laughs> okay. And, he, and this, the, the uh, former slave knows how to read and write, and he gives him the most elegant tell-off that I have ever read. <laughs> okay. That you know where you can take that letter, you know. Um, you know what you can do with your offer to work, and uh, I'll see you later. I am not going back to you or to slavery or to anything that looks anything like it. I am a free man. I'm a free man. And that is what Christ has done in his death. And let me, let me apply this to us for just a minute. That since Christ has bought us, has redeemed us from slavery and given us an eternal inheritance. And that the reason he redeemed us was so that he might bring us to live with him. But that carries with it some implications, right? Let me quote to you a couple of verses from Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Amen? Romans chapter 6, verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Rhetorical question. Answer. We can't. We died to sin. We died to sin. And we are not going to go back to that old master anymore. Amen? We are not going to live in slavery anymore because Jesus Christ has bought us from slavery to sin. No man or woman who ever got out of, got out of Dixie on the Underground Railroad ever willingly went back. Amen? And in the same way, we who have been bought from slavery to sin must not willingly go back into it. A high price was paid for us. A high price. Uh, I want to move on here, verses 18 to 22, to give us a, an additional benefit of Christ's death. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, And indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, 
what he's doing here in these verses is going back and comparing Christ under the new covenant uh, to Moses and the old covenant and their law. And he's reminding these Jewish believers, these Hebrew Christians, of their history. And he's telling them that, look, remember the book of Exodus? In the book of Exodus, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and gave the law to the nation of Israel, he, they built a tabernacle just as God commanded. Now, some of you who were here when we did Exodus remember how long it took to build the tabernacle and how long we went through the book of Exodus and how long they were at the mountain. And we took the same amount of time to, to, uh, to go through Exodus as they spent at the mountain, a little over a year. All right. And you remember all of those articles, and you remember God giving explicit instruction on how they were to be built. And, and, and you have to build it this way and not this way, and it's to have this and not that, and all these specific instructions according to the pattern that you had on the mountain. And then we read all in one shot, one Sunday, all of the instructions of, how, of the, the fact that they actually built it. They actually built it. And it says, and they built it exactly according to the way that God commanded. And then, when all that was done, they offered sacrifices, and Moses went through the whole tabernacle and through the whole nation and sprinkled everything and everyone, including the law itself, with blood. Why? Because according to the terms of God's covenant with the people of Israel, there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And if God is going to dwell among His people, which was the promise of the old covenant, that He would come and dwell in the midst of them, then they would have to be sprinkled and purified with blood. And why blood? Because blood is a symbol of death. And sin is a capital crime against God. And so something has to die to atone for sin. And so we have been sprinkled, not with the blood of an animal, but with the blood of Christ. And therefore, the forgiveness that we have is better than the forgiveness they got. And the author explains that a little more clearly in the other uh, verses in this chapter. So I want to look at those with you here, which tell us that God has granted us complete salvation and complete purification from sin. So let's look at these verses here. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world." But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, 
And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who were eagerly waiting for Him. Now, to understand what the author of Hebrews is saying here in this part of the text, you need to listen real closely. You get my Charles Stanley on here. Listen to me now. You got to listen to me now. Um, because everything in the preceding three chapters, chapter 7, chapter 8, and all of chapter 9 up to this point, is leading up to the thrust of these six verses right here. So, and he told us in chapter 7 that Jesus is our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is a, a greater than the Levite priesthood. He also told us in chapter 7 and chapter 8 that Jesus serves as a high priest in the heavenly sanctuary of which the earthly tabernacle and the earthly temple were just copies and imitations. They were finite imitations of the real things that exist in heaven. And he also told us in chapter 8 that Jesus' death initiated the new covenant promised through the prophet Jeremiah... And then he told us in chapter 9 that in fulfilling the new covenant, that Jesus' ministry is better than the old priest because his sacrifice on the cross cleanses people on the inside and not just on the outside so that we experience the eternal inheritance of new life and redemption and forgiveness. And so now, in these verses, the author is telling us about the permanence and completeness and lasting glory of our salvation. He says, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he entered into the heavenly sanctuary. That is, into the place where God himself dwells. The dwelling of God, the place of which the tabernacle was just a copy. And if it's true, and it is, that the tabernacle had to be purified with animal sacrifices, hence the sprinkling of all that blood on everything in it and all the people who would go in it, then it is surely true that the genuine article had to likewise be purified before it could be entered by sinners, meaning you and me before it could be entered by us, just like Moses had to purify the tabernacle before sinners could come in. So Jesus has to purify the heavenly sanctuary before you and I can come in. He says it has to be purified with better sacrifices than these, meaning than an animal. And so it specifically had to be purified with the blood of Jesus, the sinless God-man, whose death enables us to come before God through Jesus, who serves as our mediating high priest. Just as people in the Old Testament could not come to God directly because they were sinners, because we are sinners, we need a mediating priest. We cannot come to God the Father directly. We come through Jesus by means of the Spirit's power. Amen? You don't come on your own. The Roman Catholic friends will sometimes tell you, you know, well, don't you need someone to help you out as you come to God? And I say, yes, in fact, the Bible says that you do. And in fact, the Bible also tells us who that is. That is Jesus. 
And Jesus is our mediator between us and God. And by the way, also according to your Bible, the only one that God accepts. The only one that God accepts. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The God-man, Jesus Christ. And as our high priest who offered the perfect sacrifice of of himself, he is a massive, massive improvement over the old covenant priests. The old covenant priests came before God with animal blood, not their own blood. That's what he's saying when he says they came with blood, not their own. In other words, they, they, because what would happen if they offered their own blood? They'd all be dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Uh, so they couldn't do that. But Jesus, as the Son of God, could offer His own blood as sacrifice. And because He was sinless, it would count for the sins of other people. And so He atoned for sin in a way that they couldn't. And so as, but because they couldn't, they had to come year after year after year after year. But because Jesus was the sinless God-man, when He came with sacrifice, it actually accomplished the atonement that the other sacrifices merely pointed forward to. Jesus' sacrifice actually achieves forgiveness for us. It's not just the promise that one day that will be forgiven, but it actually grants us forgiveness. It actually brings us into relationship with God. It actually atones for sin and puts God and man at one. That we are in relationship together. And we could never have been before without the sacrifice of Jesus. And so as a result, look at your text and underline this phrase. He put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. What that means is is that sin is conquered and defeated, and no additional sacrifice is ever needed. We are cleansed and purified on the inside because, as it were, we were sprinkled with the blood of Christ through His death and resurrection for us that we got sprinkled with a better blood than the blood of a goat or the blood of a cow. We got sprinkled with the blood of Christ, which cleanses and purifies and brings us into relationship with God such that we can live for eternity in His presence. Now, that's pretty good. In fact, that's the best that God can do for you. Amen? And... Since Christ has bought me forgiveness and purified me with His blood, that tells us something, doesn't it? It tells me that I don't have to anymore live in shame and in guilt over my sin. I get, you know, I get a new start. I get a new life. I get to literally start over when I put my 
faith in Christ at ground zero with a blank slate as far as God is concerned. Because Jesus has cleansed and purified and forgiven and sprinkled me with his blood so that I am able to enter into God's presence, not acquitted, but innocent of all I have done. Innocent. Isn't that amazing? That's way better than anything under the Old Covenant. It's a vast improvement over that. I am a, as 1 Corinthians tells us, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. We have been made new, and so I don't have to live in that. I don't have to live with regret over the mistakes of my past, When I get to the mistakes of my future, I don't have to live in regret over them either. I still need to confess and walk with the Lord, but I don't have to let the past drag me down because I have a glorious future ahead. In fact, that's the point of verses 27 and 28, that we have a glorious salvation ahead. Just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's true. There is no second opportunity to trust in Christ. The life you're living right now is the one you get. This is your opportunity to trust in Christ. And if you don't, after that you face God's judgment. But in the same way, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Christ is coming back, in other words. And when he comes back, it won't be like the first coming to deal with our sin. Why not? Because it's already dealt with, right? You don't go back and do what is already done, and if it ain't broke, you're not fixing it, right? And it's not broke, Jesus' death has secured for us an eternal redemption. We have an eternal inheritance through faith in Him, in His death and resurrection. And so when Jesus comes back, it won't have anything to do with us and our sin. He won't need to redeem us again. And by the way, there is no need for repeated sacrifice. There's no need for repeated sacrifice. Jesus does not need to be re-crucified and re-sacrificed every time that we sin. Because it's once to put away sin. Through one sacrifice of Himself. Once. Why was it once? Because when you did it all, once... You don't need to go back. There's nothing left over to yet that yet needs to be dealt with. It's done. You know, one of the phrases that my dad taught me when I was growing up was, son, if you don't have time to do it right the first time, when are you going to have time to do it over? Right? Uh, <laughs> right? And that's true. That's <laughs> a true principle. Uh, Jesus did the atonement thing right the first time. And there's nothing left he needs to go back and clean up. It's done. And so he does not do it over. Instead, what he is doing is coming back 
to claim us, to bring us into the eternal inheritance we have already received. He is coming back to get us. And it has been a long time since he has been gone, at least from our perspective, right? But here I think Peter, the apostle, is really, really helpful. He says, dear friend, he is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. But he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance, right? So what is Jesus waiting on to return to get us? He is waiting on everybody who has been called by God into salvation to respond to the call. And when that happens, when that happens, Jesus will come back. How many people yet need to respond to the call? I don't know. I know that half the people who have ever lived on this planet are alive right now. And that God is saving for himself a people. God is saving for himself a people. And when that task is finished, the Lord will return. The Lord will return. And that he will save us. As the scripture says, he will save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And since Christ has saved me, I need to be among that number, right? I need to be among the number of people who are eagerly waiting for him. And I don't just mean like on a temporary basis, like I used to be in high school. You know, if I had a test I hadn't studied for. Right, oh Jesus, come today. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, not like that. But with the idea that with the idea that today could be the day and I need to serve the Lord with honor and with integrity and with holiness today cuz today could be the day and I hope it is. Uh, I have a great uncle who's a pastor, and he wears a little trumpet on his. He's he's quite a bit older than me, but he wears a little trumpet on his lapel. And I ask him about that, and he goes, I said, what's that? And he goes, it's a trumpet. I said, what's it for? He goes, maybe today. (laughs) Okay. And that is the kind of eagerness that we ought to live with. Maybe today. The Lord will return, and we will receive our inheritance and enter into the presence of God to dwell forever. Amen? Let's pray, and then let's sing. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has achieved for us a redemption that is far beyond anything that we could ask or imagine. That he, is, he has fulfilled the old covenant and its promises in a way that we could not have predicted. And in a way that is beyond majestic. And he has granted us an inheritance of dwelling in your presence as innocent saints. Redeemed and forgiven and purified from the inside out forever and ever. And Father, I do pray that that today would be the day 
when the trumpet blows and the archangel screams and the dead in Christ rise. But Father, I pray that if that between now and that day, whenever that is, that we would be faithful to you, that we would live as redeemed people, and that we would honor you with our whole heart and life. And Father, may our worship today as we sing honor you as well. In Jesus' name, amen.